Hello everyone and welcome back to series 10 of the Great Women Artists podcast. I am so excited to say that this series is supported by the Levitt Collection, a vast and varied art collection of which a major portion is dedicated to fantastic works by women artists. The Levitt Collection's support for women in the arts is such that preparations are in full swing for the creation of the new museum, FAM, F-A-M-M, which will be opening in June 2024 in Mougins in the south of France. It will be the first major museum in mainland Europe dedicated to solely female artists and will exhibit a myriad of artworks all from the collection. Impressionist, surrealist, modern and contemporary art created by women from around the world will take pride of place in the Levitt's new museum, Female Artists of the Mujan Museum. But in the meantime, stay tuned by following at fam.mujan and don't miss the beautiful book Abstract Expressionists, The Women, published by Morel, which presents a selection of works from the collection alongside richly illustrated essays by scholars Ellen G. Landau and Joan M. Marta, all available now. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most groundbreaking and my favourite artists working today, Karon Davis. Hailed for her life-size sculptures that she covers in white plaster dust and bases on her own or friends' bodies, Davis's works often take the form of installations that very powerfully explore vital narratives of current and historical political events, as well as speaking to the history of dance and performance. While they speak on a universal level, Davis especially looks to issues of history, race and violence in the US, memorialising key injustices witnessed by innocent victims from the 20th century and beyond. By executing her figures in a stark shade of white, she also speaks to Western beauty ideals and the standards that have been entrenched in our society since classical times. Brought up by a family of performers, Davis was exposed to the arts from a young age, the excitement of entertainment, but also the reality of what people with these careers go through. And it's this insight that she gives us in her work, showing us both the pain and ecstasy to make something deemed beautiful. As her mother said, beauty must suffer. Although a trained ballerina in her youth, Davis turned to filmmaking, studying at Spelman College, but her love for performance has stayed with her in her work. Entering an exhibition by Davis is akin to watching a film or ballet playing out in front of you. There's narrative, costume, drama, a beginning and an end, but also beauty and pain. In 2012, Davis, along with her late husband Noah, founded the Underground Museum in Los Angeles, a groundbreaking space that featured the work of black artists and served the community. 
And most recently, Davis's work has been featured at the Hammer Museum, Jeffrey Deitch, Salon 94, and is in the collection of Mocha Los Angeles, LACMA, the Hammer Museum, the Brooklyn Museum, and more. And for those in New York City, she has just installed a major sculpture on the High Line of a ballerina taking her final bow in conjunction with an exhibition that looked at the process of ballet, as well as the passion and resilience integral to life as a dancer and as an artist. Karan Davis, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Wow, that was, wow. I got to like pat myself on the back and <laughs> pop my collar with that. Thank you for that intro. <laughs> my pleasure, my pleasure. I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on this show. Thank you so much for coming on today. Karan, I have been a fan of your work for a long time, especially your work with the Underground Museum. But it was in NYC last fall that I became awestruck by your show, Beauty Must Suffer. I am so drawn and feel so moved by your work because for me, it is this total work of art. It is art, cinema, storytelling, theatre and dance all bound up. Walking through your installations is such a powerful experience because you focus on the span of a life, a career or the length of a ballet, showing the breathtaking beauty that comes with it, but which also often lies on the surface for so much goes on as in our lives behind closed doors. So I want to start by asking you, how do you hope for people to feel when they're in the space or confronted by your work? Wow, I would hope they feel like you, (laughs) immersed in the experience. I feel like now in my life, everything's just becoming full circle of all of my training at Spelman College with theater and growing up in theater and taking dance since I was a little girl and doing stagecraft and designing lighting, making costumes and going to USC film school. So it's all coming full circle, I feel, in this show where I'm able to take people on this journey and this story. So I come from a family of storytellers and being in theater and studying Stanislavski and great playwrights and filmmakers. I feel like I would love for people to be taken on a journey when they step in a place as if you're going into movie theater or seeing a Broadway show. That's where I'm coming from. That's where my head is all the time. Every time I put a sculpture, I'm like, hey, what's the lighting going to be? You know, doing a sculpture, what's the costume? What is she going to be wearing? What's their backstory? Most of my sculptures have a backstory. I'm creating a character like I'm an actor, Stanislavski, and just going into where they from, where were they born, what were their parents like, where they go to school, what was their journey to get to this moment. So I hope everybody gets that when they're in the space and also see themselves in the work, most importantly. I mean, you're so drawn to these characters, especially when you see them in sort of different modes in their life, whether they're sort of pancaking their shoes behind the scenes or, you know, smoking outside a stage door or something. You imagine their life and what they're going through and what they're thinking. It's so three-dimensional. Sounds so obvious, but it's three-dimensional as sort of sensorial and intellectual in everything way. Thank you. Thank you. I love that. I hope everyone feels that. For me, it's more important what Not what I'm saying with the work, but what people feel and get when they see it, their perspective on it. I mean, why are you drawn to sculpture? I think the tradition of it, the feeling of it. I love just the process, number one, of touching the plaster and being in the studio and the ritual of making sculpture gets me up in the morning and makes me want to stay in the studio till late at night. And taking that form and being able to tell stories with it and challenging myself. That was my first time actually trying to tell a story with sculpture by doing a frozen ballet. 
I'm calling it. How can I take someone through this journey of a story with making movement and telling a story without movement, if that makes sense? I love how you say Frozen Ballet as well, because also as a, an exhibition visitor, when I walk into your installations, you also they also are moving in the way that they're moving through your site as well. And also, I never get that up close to the ballerinas when I'm watching the production. So for me, it, it is frozen, but it's also moving. And it's such an insight because I've never seen the encrusted diamonds so close up or what, what that skirt actually looks like. It's much more robust than I thought. Oh, yeah. All the detail. It's all about that detail, girl. (laughs) Your bodies are from your family and friends and yourself. I mean, why do you like to sort of instill this personal element? Oh, it's all personal. I can't make the work unless it's personal. I've had people approach me to do commissions for works and I've turned it down because I have to be inspired. It has to come from that space deep in my soul that wants to speak, that is drawn to it. Otherwise, I'm not inspired. If I'm inspired by a story and history or a family member, it just comes to me. Sometimes I might see someone and like the other day I was in the hair salon. I saw this beautiful woman. She must have been six one, And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh my God. I, mean, I kept staring at her. I was like, excuse me. I'm sorry. I just, I need to sculpt you. I need you in my studio. So sometimes it's a person and they'll inspire something or sometimes it's, I'll be reading an article or something in a book or history, and that'll inspire me. So it, it really depends. Or I might be walking down the street and there might be someone that's, there's a, there's a bit of a gesture that happens and I'll have to take a photograph with my mind or if I have my camera and that will inspire it. So it can come from different places. Definitely. Yeah, I love that. Also, I just love the idea of sort of also creating characters from real people as well. Almost it's like you're a sort of casting agent or something. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Quite literally as well. (laughs) And what I love is like, you know, I I often joke with my friends of like one day, hopefully I'll have like a museum show where it's a retrospective and I'll see all the people in my life. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, you coat your figures in this white plaster dust as well. I mean, that's what makes your work so significant and so identifiable. I mean, why are you interested in this effect? You know, actually in the beginning... I played with both. And I'm going back to that where I actually paint my figures. So like the piece at the Brooklyn Museum, Nicotine, she's painted with oil paint. And then I felt like I had to go to the beginning, right, of like marble and stone. And what I feel is missing in the world in museums when I go, I don't see black figures historically in that way. If I go to the Met or anywhere, the Louvre, it's all white figures, Caucasian figures, and to just take that and put what I want to see in the world, black bodies, in a classical way, in these spaces. So I've been working from that for a long time, but I'm actually like, I'm doing bronze pieces. I just painted, I just did a black gold leaf. So it's the journey and I'm excited to show people more of what I've been having in my brain. There's a lot more going on. (laughs) <laughs> just the beginning. So I'm going to be rolling out more of that. But right now I'm enjoying this process of working with the white figures, void of color and just working on form. Yeah. It's also so interesting because, you know, when we think about the Aphrodites or the ancient Greek goddesses who were carved by the Romans into sculpture, so many of them were also painted as well. They've just lost their paint over time. So it's so interesting to think that, you know, because the Renaissance gave this idea that it was all this whiteness. Exactly. And so what you see now is the color stripped away. 
So, you know, I've, I've had people say, well, if they're black figures, why are they white? But it's um, white is not a color. It's all about the form for me right now. Yeah. And I think also as a viewer, you see so much in that. You see the personality, you see the drama, you focus on their eyes or uh, expression. Exactly. And, and how does this sort of correspond to your longtime interest in ancient Egypt and mummification as well? And why use that technique? Oh, yeah. Even the use of the gauze and the wrapping for me is very ritualistic and traditional. Now, I've loved Egypt. I've yet to go. That is like on my list in the next two years. But I have a library of I just I just study it all. And I mean, some people when they come to my studio might think I'm a bit morbid and, and crazy. But um, <laughs> and I have pictures of mummies and I study how they're wrapped because it's an art within itself. The way these men wrap these mummies, it's so beautiful and the weaving and the in and out and all of it, you know. So I love to recreate that in my work. And there's just something about it for me that is, is very ancient. And there's something about capturing time with these mummies, right? They're waiting to go to the afterlife and come alive again. You know, there's this whole story behind it, but they want to capture their body in this moment in time. And I feel like I'm doing that with this work, definitely. Totally. And, and it's so moving as well, because I'm thinking about that sort of final sculpted ballot at the top of the Salon 94 Gallery in New York and how that play was being elevated so much physically. It is like sort of going into the afterlife or go, like the, the stage is a bit like an afterlife. Oh, yeah, definitely. It is the afterlife. After all you've done your whole life, you know, most of the dancers have been waiting for this moment since they were a little girl or a little boy and you work hard. The stage is that moment where you just like, you know, it, this is it. This is the afterlife. This is what I've been working for. I've been working all my life. Definitely. I'd love to go back to your beginnings as well. You were born in 1977 in Reno in Nevada. Your parents were ballerina Nancy Bruner and Tony, an Emmy Award winning actor and dancer and singer Ben Vereen. I mean, I love how they met through dancing. And you've said, I came out of the womb and my parents handed me a tap shoe and ballet shoes. I mean, tell me about that upbringing and being surrounded by that. Oh, man, that was inspiring. That was great. I mean, I love my childhood. I often say like I was a Broadway brat and a casino <laughs> brat because I grew up in a time when it was, you know, I got to see great people like Gregory Hines and Jaime Rogers and all these great choreographers and be in the wings and watch like Savion Glover and be in rehearsal studios that even the smell of like a musty New York City studio. I don't know. It just brings me comfort or an old Broadway theater. I love it. Even the sounds of the orchestra warming up, all of that just feeds me so much. Uh, it's, it's what I grew up around watching my dad in rehearsal and my sister Naja going to ballet class at Dance Theater of Harlem. She was the ballet girl. I was actually the Ailey girl. Because I saw her feet and I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'll be barefoot. I'm good. <laughs> but that was part of my life. I mean, after school, New York City, get on the crosstown bus and take the bus down to um, Broadway Dancer and be there from 4 o'clock till 8 p.m. at night. I mean, summertime's intensive, so vocal lessons, all of it. You know, so that's all I 
I knew. I grew up watching musicals to this day. I love to watch Turner Classic Network and watch like <laughs> moving in movies. I watch like old Gene Kelly. I mean, I grew up on all that stuff and I'm so thankful for it. It definitely feeds everything that I do. I'm definitely a Broadway baby. I'm often known for like breaking out in song. Oh my God, come on, we need to hang out. So do, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, anytime. Perfect, perfect. But I love the theater. I love the process. I love watching artists in a studio figure it out and dancers figure it out and take choreography and take it to another level and reach deep down inside and discovering themselves in it and watching that moment when it clicks and they hit it. I love being backstage and and seeing all the workings of how the sets fly in and out. It's a beautiful thing. I'm so interested. What did it teach you of being surrounded by so much of that sort of backstage and behind the scenes about what the kind of final presentation meant? I mean, you know, even as an artist, an exhibition is like the show. Oh, the show must go on. And you make it happen no matter what. Growing up around that, that's what it instilled in me is just the show must go on and beauty must suffer. And we will do whatever it takes to entertain the people and to also selfishly I feel all artists feel like we do it for ourselves first because we love it. You're lucky enough to just bear witness to it, (laughs) right? (laughs) And what about art? Was art like sculpture or paint ever present in your life? No, it was definitely just theater and film for most of my life until I met Noah. And I didn't really know much about the art world. I was always making things and he was the one that really was like, hey, kid, you got something here. Like, let me nurture this because I think you're going to like this. And he was like, all right, Sculpture 101, we are going to make sculptures from cardboard boxes. This is what I learned at Cooper, and I'm going to teach you. Like, we're going to just strip these boxes, and we're going to make things. And we, during our courting and when we were falling in love, it was just, we literally locked ourselves in our house, and we were just like, made work all the time. I would be making sculpture or editing films and he would be painting and I would help him with his paintings. He's like, okay, let me teach you what oil paint feels like, how it moves. So I was his assistant (laughs) for a long time (laughs) and we would inspire each other, which was, it was so much fun. It was best time of my life. I mean, Whatever I was working on, if I was doing research on dancers or Black Wall Street, when I look at his paintings, I see myself in it because it was whatever I was working on, he was painting and vice versa. It was a beautiful time of my life. And I was so inspired. He was my first, I always say he was my first teacher. He would go to museums. He would take me to the Getty. We were in LA at the time. We would go to the Met and he had a great book collection and we would read and he'd show me things. We'd stay up really late making art and watching something called Classic Art Showcase. Are you familiar with Classic Art Showcase? No, tell me. I guess it's just a an LA thing maybe. I don't know. You can go online and, and watch it, but it's like four hours. I always felt like it was made for artists or like stoners up late, but it's like comes on at like 12 o'clock at night till four And it's just classic ballets, odd videos of just people walking through museums. And it's all done with like classical music. And it's just all, it's all there. We would just keep it on and just watch it while we were making work and let it 
inspire us the whole night. <laughs> and then in 2012, you and Noah founded the Underground Museum in Arlington Heights. What was the impetus and the mission behind this? How did that come together? Well, you know, when we got together, we were always interested in spaces and creating spaces for other people. We lived in West Adams, which was the very first neighborhood, really, like Beverly Hills of Los Angeles. So there's these like big old craftsman homes, beautiful Besby Berkeley has a home there, like, you know, all these politicians, the Crenshaw, people that built LA lived in this neighborhood. And then they built the highway and everybody went Miracle Mile into the valley and black and brown people moved into the neighborhood. And then they called it Sugartown and you had Marvin Gaye lived there and Paul Williams and Bojangles lived there. And I think at one point, Josephine Baker had a house there. So there's like this rich history. We really love this neighborhood. Oh, Hattie McDaniel. First of all, Hattie McDaniel, Louise Beavers and Ethel Waters fought so they could live in that neighborhood because it was the Beverly Hills of LA. They were like, we want to live here. They weren't even allowed to live in that neighborhood and they fought the city to live there. And so it has a fascinating history. And we loved just learning about it. And we were looking at spaces all the time, even though we could not even afford these homes. But we're these kids and we're just like getting dressed up like we could afford it and calling the realtors. No. Oh my God, that's so fun. There was this one house called the Fitzgerald. And this guy Fitzgerald who bought music to LA and helped build the Hollywood Bowl. He built this like gothic house on West Adams Boulevard. And I mean, we must have gone in there like four or five times. And we're like, this would be such a great art space and had all this land. And we was like, we can just keep the integrity and the beauty of the craftsmen. And we can have different rooms. And this could be the movie room. And this could be the library. And then we could build like a whole arts exhibition space on the land. And then, of course, we have to have a garden because we want to bring green space to the community. And so it was always a dream of ours. And then, unfortunately, his father passed away soon after. That was so devastating. And Kevin, he actually instilled in Noah the dream and the vision to always give back to the community and to build something. And when he was very sick, he would often talk to Noah about that. And so after he passed away, Noah inherited quite a bit of money. And he looked at me, he's like, this is not for us. I mean, we were dead. We could have bought a car. We just had a baby. We could have bought a house. We could have vacation. We could have done all the things. And he was like, this is not our money. This belongs to the community. And he took every single dime and he put it into that space. And every time I walk back there, I'm like, wow, this was all steel and concrete. It is so beautiful now and it's for the community. And it's like, even that itself is an artwork because it keeps changing right? So every season it changes. It's performance art. And his mission for the space was to bring world-class art to this community and also to bring wellness. So a yoga class is like 20, 30 bucks, right? So the idea was to make everything free, the art, the movie nights, the meditation, we really wanted to create space for the community. And when Noah was sick, 
he was diagnosed with cancer. During that time, we had to show up in the space and Helen Molesworth had just started working at MOCA and she had come in and it's history from there. <laughs> he asked if we could get stuff from the collection because we were asking people all the time, can we get this David Hammonds? Can we get this? Like collectors, museums, everyone said, no, are you crazy? Not in that neighborhood. What's your security system like? So that's where Imitation of Wealth came about because he looked up at the lights and literally a light bulb went off and he was like, we're going to make these ugly fluorescent lights. Dan Flavins, you know, let's find a vacuum. I found a vacuum on Craigslist and cleaned it up and we made a Jeff Koons, you know, so it just, and his point was, who is to say what's beauty and what's worth a million dollars or a hundred grand? Like you can make this yourself. Everyone deserves beauty and everyone can make it themselves. You don't have to go out and spend a million dollars, honey. And you should live with it. So I, I hope it was our home. <laughs> like my son ate cereal and watched cars at the bar, you know? And so our hope was that people felt at home there as well. Because art is made to be lived with, not put in storage, you know? <laughs> so, and the museum was... Uh, is a space that, I mean, it's just so special to me and the community and all who's involved. And fortunately, Noah had built a community of family and friends around us that after he passed, came together and we just took the baton and we're like, we got it, we got you, and made the dream happen. And it's been so beautiful over the years, just watching it blossom and become everything that he wanted it to be. But it took a village. I always would say to people, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to raise a museum, I tell you. <laughs> so fortunate for everyone in our lives that just really loved Noah and loved the vision and believed in it and made it happen. It's amazing. And the legacy as well and, and what that will do for future generations and inspire people and everything. It's extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, it's people told him he was crazy, but at the end of the day, I was a believer. Some of the craziest ideas I would say to anyone, just like, go for it. Don't let anyone tell you no. How are you going to know if you don't try? Right. And since then I've had so many young people and young artists. I want to start a space. I want to do this. And that's the legacy too. And the young men and women that worked for us at the space and helped make it happen and seeing them out in the world now curating and performing and being their own artists and, and creating spaces. And that's what it's all about. Yeah, I get tears. I get all clamped and like, oh, I'm so proud of it. It's amazing. It's really, truly extraordinary. Thank you. I'd love to talk about the artworks that you made in the aftermath of this as well. Because the last, you know, nine years have been just full of your sculpture. It's extraordinary. I mean, I'm particularly moved by pain management from 2016. You recreated the hospital-bound world in which Noah lived for so long. I mean, can you talk to us about this work and what kind of atmosphere you wanted to create? Oof. Yeah, that work, you know, at the time, I, like I said, I was a closet artist and the people that knew us, that were close to us, saw the work because we were making work together in our space. And 
I never really saw myself working professionally as an artist because Noah was a genius. And even though he was my biggest fan and believer, and he would always be like, you're going to do this, and you're going to show at the Getty, and you're going to make work like this. And I'm like, you're crazy. What are you talking about? You know, I'm like, what are you talking about? And Anthony and Naomi came into the studio. They had seen my work. And after Noah passed, they're like, do you want to do a show? And I was shocked that they asked and excited and nervous and all the things because I didn't I didn't know what I was going to do after Noah passed. I used to work in film and I had this nonprofit that was in debt. <laughs> I was in debt from all the medical bills. They had repoed my car. Like it was, I was just in a space where I didn't know what I was going to do. I was thinking about being a PA again on a film. And so I took the opportunity and I sat with it a long time and I prayed on it, meditated of what I wanted to say, right? And I really wanted to let people know what we had gone through. It felt like the right thing to do. And the work just started spilling out of me. I really wanted to make a um, comment or observation rather on the food that we eat in this country and Monsanto. So you have the Memorial Garden with a young girl, you know, picking instead of food, but picking tissues out of the earth. And all the nurses were scarecrows. So they were actually stuffed with our bills. So after he passed, I had a in my office a table of all of our debt. And I couldn't even look at it. And one day I just shredded it all. And Noah always said, use everything. And so I took all those bills and I made these nurses scarecrows and I stuffed their bodies with this shredded paper. And I guess it started from that, actually, from making these nurses. I guess that's where my installation started because I really wanted to bring people into the space, into what we were going through. So that's where the waiting room came in, where it was like all dusty and the clock was broken because it felt like we were constantly, and we were, we were constantly in waiting rooms, but it felt like forever. So I really wanted people to feel that where you're just sitting and waiting. Sometimes when you're in the waiting room, waiting for results, waiting for him to get out of surgery, waiting for all the things, it feels like a lifetime. So that's why it just had this like canned music that was on repeat and old magazines and trees were falling. Like you had been sitting there for decades because that's what it felt like. And in this space, I had these young sculptures of like these young, I call them the children of the moon because they were like spirits, but they were all named after whatever you believe in spiritual. Like there was archangels, Michael, there was Mary and the moon. So whatever you believe in and whatever you, you hold on to, I wanted to to represent that in those sculptures. And all the nurses were named after nicotine and morphine, just like whatever your vice is to get you by, whatever your pain management. Is it praying to Mary <laughs> or is it taking that morphine? What gets you through this pain? That's what that show was about. And then I had Noah's old assistant, Marlon, come in. I made a huge tissue box because the tissue box was one of the first things Noah taught me to make in our home with the cardboard. We made a huge Kleenex tissue box and he painted it. So I wanted to recreate that. And so you have my plaster tissues coming out. And then I brought Marlon in 
he knows how to paint like Noah. And he came in and he did the flowers for me. And that was my tribute to Noah in the show. Taking it back to the early days when we made work together. Yeah. I love the amalgamation of all of it, not even just with the physicalness of the show, but the stories in your life that come together in this one installation as well. Yeah. Thank you. That was a a hard one to get through, but I'm glad I did it. And a lot of people afterwards, you know, it's fortunately in this country, cancer is a thing. It is an epidemic. And uh, especially during the Monsanto Garden, the relationship between our food and hospitals and the medical industry and pharmaceutical industry, how they're hand in hand. I really wanted to to make that connection for people and also for all, all the people that have lost someone to cancer to come to a place where they felt they were being seen and heard and felt and have some comfort in that. I think one aspect of your work that I find very moving and which you include in many sculptures is this, the subject of children. Yeah, the innocence, right? Especially with game. It's just like innocence robbed and the teachers. Our students and our teachers have become hunting game. They're not protected. And as a mother, I felt like I, I wanted to tell how I feel of when I drop my kid at school. You just never know what's going to happen. And if you turn on the news, it's just like, oh, all these mass shootings. And I mean, when I was a kid in the 80s, you know, we could run the streets and not worry about all that. And now it's just, I feel like the innocence is lost for kids between social media and what they see every day. And they're so exposed to so much. We need to cherish our our kids and and keep them young. But the world is just aging them, honey, (laughs) you know? (laughs) It's sad. Part of the work, too, of of making the children is just taking adults back to that moment within ourselves, right? Like the kids at the bar, that beginning, that first position, right? In anything you you start in life when you're a kid, like that first moment. Totally. I love how your work examines a whole life as well. And, you know, from the inception of that child playing, whether it's skipping in feedback at the Jack Shaneman school in Kinderhook or afraid under a desk or how the media perceives them in game with the antlers. I love the sort of multiplicity of how you present children. You take them seriously. Mm, They're the future. They are. Um, A really moving exhibition of yours in 2023 was No Good Deed Goes Unpunished as well, where you restaged an exhibition centered on one of the most searing images in American history of Bobby Seale the co-founder of the Black Panther Party, in a courtroom where he was bound and gagged an order by the looming Judge Hoffman in a trial that happened in 1969. While there were no photographs, artist sketches were made. Can you tell us about this work? I know, it's a hard one. Even when I was making the work, it was hard to look at. But I think the most important thing about this show for me with making it was that I didn't know about it until my father told me about this record he did in the 70s when I was a young actor where he played this guy, Bobby Seale, who was a black pant. Like, he told me the history. And then in college, I I was always digging in the crates and, and I was always trying to find this record because my dad didn't have a recording. Now you can just Google it and it's on YouTube and listen to it. But back then, you couldn't find it. And I found it and I listened to it and I was mortified of what 
I heard and how he was treated. And I thought it was an important story to tell. It was not in my history books. And I think as an artist, I think part of at least my mission or what I think artists should do is capture history, be a storyteller. Because especially nowadays with our books being banned, our history not being taught in schools, like we are the keepers of the history. Our museums are now. So we make the work and they end up in museums and they show it. Like That is a way to preserve our history, right? And when I did the work, I was surprised about how many people didn't know that this happened. And when I was making Bobby, that was really hard. I made all the jurors first and Judge Hoffman. Bobby sat in my studio for a minute, but it took me a while to actually like chain his, wrap his arms and his feet to the chair and to gag him with the plaster. And even when I did that, I had to take a couple shots of tequila because it was so intense. I was disturbed by doing it and I wanted people to be disturbed when they walked in the room of what they were witnessing, to bear witness to this part of history that is just horrific. And I hope that I achieved that. And I was so grateful that Jeffrey, he showed it in New York, and then he was like, hey, I want to show it in L.A. too, because when I put this show up, it was during COVID, and I didn't think a lot of people were able to to see it. So when it came to L.A., I was really excited that people had a chance to visit it and um, experience it. I sadly didn't get to see it in real life, but from images of what I can see and reading about it is you know, the way that Judge Hoffman looms above Bobby and the kind of distance between them. I think that's like where the power of sculpture comes in is the physicalness of it all. And you can feel that separation and what that separation means in history and still does today. Oh yeah, definitely. I think especially when staging it, it was important for me, for the judge to be high so you could feel like this dooming figure above you also. So you have the perspective of Bobby, right? Looking up at this judge and what that feels like. And the way that Jeffrey's space, he has like a raised stage on the side. I put the jurors. So he's looking up at both the jury and the judge and how small he must've felt in that moment. I wanted people to feel that themselves in this space, to feel him, to feel his perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what I find so moving about your work is seeing that perspective. I remember in Beauty Must Suffer when I saw the teenage girl, she must have been 13 years old, pancaking her shoes, which is when dancers cover the pink satin shoes with makeup to match their skin tones. And the pile of pink slippers that outnumbered the brown slippers, it was kind of like this stark reminder. It's almost like a metaphor or microcosm to the way that so much of the world is. And I think through sculpture, you're able to get on the level. Mm, thank you. I love that piece, the pancaking piece. That was an also a very important part of history. Again, even if it's just for me, just to put things in the world of just like, yeah, no one's talking about this. Thank God for Misty Copeland. Now she's she's talking about the pancaking, but this is something that's been going on for decades, you know, and dancers still do it. Although Block and I think Grishko now is making shoes 
for Black people, but they're not readily available. You have to sometimes order them. So you just can't go into Capizio sometimes and order a pair of point shoes that are your skin tone. And we have so many skin tones from light to dark and forever. Dancers had to actually dye their tights and pancake their shoes. And it's a process. And especially if you're in a company, like a company goes through about six to 7,000 pairs of point shoes in one season, which is insane. So just imagine one dancer having to pancake all those shoes because when you use a point shoe, you take a hammer to it or you you mess it up. You've got to like break it and do all the things, but you have to, oftentimes they use a pair of point shoes for one performance and they toss it or rehearsal and toss it. So just think about if you're a professional dancer, how many shoes you have to pancake. But it's important because otherwise you're cutting off your line. So so dancing is all, all about your lines, right? So the tip of your fingertips, darling, to your toes, that line has to be so precise and reach and reach and stretch. And what was happening with dancers until Arthur Mitchell in 1971 he was inspired by a dancer and he was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. Cause my dancers are being cut off at the hip with these pink tights. So we're going to dye the tights, the skin color of the dancer, and we're going to start pancaking these shoes. And so the line for the black dancers all of a sudden expands from your toes to your fingertips instead of being cut off at the hip. But I was a kid, I had pink shoes and pink tights. Brown girl with pink legs. But the fact that an art exhibition can draw our attention to that as well, the fact that it took until 2018 for the major makers of ballet slippers to create colours for different skin tones. And you've been incredible petitioning for more of this. Thank you. Yeah. It becomes so much more than art at the end of the day. But I need to ask you about the final story upstairs, which is the tragic love story of Echo and Narcissus. I remember going round at Salon 94 and just thinking this is the most beautiful thing I've ever witnessed. I mean, tell me about the sculpted ballet at the top of that gallery. Oh, yes. Echo <laughs> Narcissus. Oh, Echo, falling in love with that narcissist. Haven't we all some points? <laughs> or dealt with a family member that's a narcissist and lost ourselves and our minds and just been broken and then watched the narcissist just kill himself basically so in love with himself or herself you know i feel like everyone can relate to that story and knows that story and i really wanted to also with the different sculptures pay homage to choreographers like balanchine and ailey so i when i was doing my research i was like really inspired by some of the choreography so i wanted to bring that in there but use pieces of choreography from other ballets and incorporate it in my own. And I really wanted to challenge myself in trying to do a ballet with no movement. (laughs) And so when you first walk in the room, you're confronted with the love story and they're holding each other and their costumes are so opulent and there's like lace 
paths and rhinestones and they're just everything so perfect. And as you go through the ballet, the story breaks down, right? The love fades. He's caught up in himself and they're both broken. So that's why if you notice in the sculptures, the form was full. A lot of my sculptures are broken and have these voids in them. Uh, but I wanted to by the end of the story, really break them up and make them more vulnerable and feel like as if they were, and they were, breaking apart. So it's, when you look at the piece, it takes you through the story with the movement, but also the way that I sculpted it. And by the end, he's gone. He has fallen into his reflection and we find her in the finale room. So there's like all these different acts that I was trying to follow as if you were going to see a ballet. And she is dancing on eggshells and try not to step on them. And if you've ever been around a narcissist, you experience that. And I really wanted people to, um, to really see that visually and also feel it if, you, if you've ever been through it. And hopefully find comfort. I always say, find comfort in my work. Um, I don't know. But yeah, echo narcissist. That was a bit of a challenge. But I really wanted to tell a story <laughs> with a beginning, middle, and a finale. And as if to sort of create a finale for this podcast as well, you know, the curtain call is currently up on the high line right now. Oh, yes. It's so exciting. This new world of making outdoor sculptures and there's more to come this year. I'm super oh, excited. I can't wait. It, but it was really a challenge. I was really afraid to bring my work to bronze because I just was afraid that it would lose its soul, you know, lose my hand. But I was able to work with some great foundries for the curtain call and make her larger than life. And now I think I'm addicted to making large work. I'm like, let's do 20 feet. Like, you know, I'm just like, yes, let's go for it. <laughs> and just to see it there and it happened to go up the weekend the show was closing. So it was my curtain call. Everything about it was just so magical. The whole process and working with Jasmine Perry, who's with the Miami Ballet, who was at the time when I casted her, the only Black dancer at Los Angeles Ballet Company. So to to honor her and to honor Naja, my sister, and my mom, and all the dancers out there, all the Black dancers, you know, we got a big old Black ballerina on the high line. And I love her, and I, I'm going to go visit her this week. It's a dream come true. It's amazing. Karan, what you've done with art and to be able to transcend art forms and speak to real life issues and actually make changes. I think I really can't wait for everything that you do next. And I, along with so many people will be watching because really Beauty Must Suffer was my favorite show of 2023. And so thank you so much. We do have one more question for you as this is the Great Women Artists podcast. We do always ask our guests if there was a female artist or maybe dancer or whoever now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be? And what would you say to them? Ooh. Wow. I mean, I was always obsessed with Josephine Baker growing up, still am. And I would just love to just ask her to teach me that banana dance. Oh my God, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Karen Davis, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the fantastic Karon Davis. If anyone is in New York City, please go and see her fantastic curtain call, which is on the High Line. And for anything else, I have linked to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardis Mnelej. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Thank you.